And then today, uh, we are finishing up our uh, little time that we've spent looking at the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Uh, and we'll be done with uh, the book of Genesis uh, one day out into the future. Uh, we'll look at Isaac uh, and Jacob and Joseph, but we're going to finish up with uh, Abraham today. And if you've not been with us, just a, a little quick overview of what has gone on uh, with Abraham from Genesis 12, and now we're in 22. But back in uh, chapter 12, when we meet Abraham, he's 75 years old. He's an old man. Uh, he, he, he's an unbeliever, and God calls him to faith. And just like for the rest of us, when we're called to faith, there are some hard things about that, and there's some glory, glorious things about that. The hard things for Abraham was that he was going to have to leave all the things he was familiar with and go to a place that God was going to show him. God didn't tell him where he was going to go. It was some unknown place. That was hard news for Abraham. But the good news was is that he was going to bless all nations through his descendants. And Abraham didn't have any children. So essentially God was making a promise that he was going to have descendants. And not just have descendants, but descendants who would bring salvation to the world. Great news for Abraham. And what Abraham doesn't know, what God doesn't tell him when he calls him to himself is that God's going to make he and his wife Sarah wait 25 years before they have their first son, Isaac. And as we've been looking at, like I mentioned during John's baptism, is that uh, these 25 years had some high points and had some low points. His faith is far from clean, but in Genesis 22, we do reach the climax of the Abraham narrative. And so we're going to read verses uh, 1 to 14 together, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Together, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The word of the Lord. 
Can you imagine how confusing this would have been? I mean, it's confusing. I mean, at least cognitively, because multiple things seem to be at odds right here in this text. I mean, one is the promise of Isaac, and the other thing that seems to be at odds with that promise is the call to sacrifice him. There's something else that seems to be at odds with one another. I mean, one thing is that God seems to be anti-murder earlier in the book of Genesis in chapter 9. But then here he's calling Abraham to slaughter, to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. Head scratcher, so confusing. But as confusing as this must have been, it was even more painful. I mean, think about the pain that's going on in Abraham's heart at this point. Isaac was the greatest gift he's ever been given. He's always wanted a son. And now finally, at the age of 100, he gets a son. But not only has he always wanted a son, his son was a miracle. He's going to be used by God to bring salvation to the whole world. There's so much hope and so much joy attached to this little boy for Abraham. I mean, you just know that every day Abraham wakes up with Isaac and stares at him in wonder and awe. You know, Abraham's always thinking what a privilege it is for him to be Isaac's father. And then one day he gets the call. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. I mean, each of those lines, each of those descriptors, I mean, must have become more and more painful for Abraham. And now God's asking him to give up his son. I mean, for Abraham, it must have felt like God was killing him. But what we see in verse 1 that Abraham didn't know is that God isn't killing Abraham here. God is testing him. And we know as the readers that ultimately Isaac's going to be okay, that this is just a test. And God frequently does this with his people, doesn't he? I mean, the, the, the nation of Israel, when they're in the desert, God tests them time and time again. And you can read about it in Exodus 15 and 16 and Deuteronomy chapter 8. Then you get to Matthew chapter 4 in the New Testament, and you see that not only were the nation of Israel been tested, but now Jesus God's own son is being tested in Matthew 4 when God calls him to go out and fast for 40 days in the desert. I don't think neither Jesus when he's fasting in the desert nor the nation of Israel when they're wandering in the desert, I don't think they were ever like, man, this is awesome. I really want to show God how strong my faith is. I don't think they were thinking, you know, I'm going to prove to myself that I'm a true believer. I'm going to prove to everybody else that I've got things together. Nor uh, in, in, in the tests and these incidents, I don't think God's saying, you know what, I'm a little cranky today, so I'm going to take it out on my people. I don't think he was saying, you know what, they've ticked me off, so I'm going to punish them. That's not what's going on in Matthew 4 or in those Exodus and Deuteronomy passage, and that's certainly not what's going on in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham's not being punished. He's being tested. It's discipline. And when we're tested by God, it's meant to grow us. It's meant to mature us. God tests his people through adversity and hardship so that we might become to a knowledge of what's dear 
to us. See, God always knows what our function, where our functional allegiance lies. And our confessional allegiance and our functional allegiance are never perfectly aligned. See, if you call yourself a Christian and somebody just knocked on your front door and didn't ask you for any, they didn't ask you for anything specifically, but they just asked you a question and they said, hey, what's the number one priority in your life? And most of us who are Christians, I think we'd say, uh, God, I mean Jesus, I mean the Trinity, I mean I'm a Christian. We'd say something like that. But we all know that in a functional sense, God isn't our number one priority. Even if you would confess otherwise, and God knows that, and he wants you to know it too, and that's why he tests you. See, we, we usually think that the whole point of the Christian life is to get out the bad stuff and get the good stuff in. And sometimes that's true, but much more often our duty is trickier than that. Our duty as Christians is to align our hearts to have more affection for God than for his gifts. I mean, I think one of the hardest things that Jesus ever said was in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, Brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Hard for me to imagine a harder saying of Jesus than that. So is what Jesus is saying here in this text is that he's against the family? No, he's not saying that. He, he knows that family's a gift to us, but he knows that the family can become too important to us. The same is true for our sexuality. I mean, our sexuality is not a curse. Our sexuality is not evil. It's God's gift to us, but it quickly can dominate our lives so that we live for sexual pleasure instead of God. Think about our bodies or our appearance. God gave them to us. He wants us to be healthy. He wants us to take care of our bodies. But when we obsess over our appearance, we obsess over our health, we work out too much, we spend too much money making sure we stay looking young, it reveals that we've made a good thing an ultimate thing. See, we've got to remember that what God is asking Abraham to sacrifice here is something that Abraham was sure was the will of God for him to have. And that's the thing. God's always going to ask you to offer something that you treasure. And that something is almost some, always something that he has given you. So what do you do? do? you Do you sit around and you ask God, God, will you reveal to me what my heart's actual priorities are? It's not a bad prayer to ask. Psalm 139 does say, search me and know me, O God, and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of the everlasting. In some ways, that's what that prayer is. Reveal to me my priorities. That's what that prayer is. You know, in the church email this week, we're gonna send out a tool for you that might help you get a grip on what your functional allegiances are, but I would suggest the way you know what your priorities are, what your functional allegiances are, is actually take a more passive approach. I'm actually going to suggest that you be less intentional. Freeing, freeing, isn't it? The passive approach I would suggest is that you wait for God. Wait for God to take you through suffering. I mean, that's been my experience. 
I mean, what I found is, what I found in a really intense season of suffering for myself is that God wanted me to see that I treasured my friends. And I treasured my ability to make friends more than I treasured him. I didn't ask God for that. That wasn't on my prayer list. I didn't pray. I did, I did not pray for it because I was scared to. I didn't even know. I wasn't even aware of what my functional allegiance was. But what God did is that he brought me through some circumstances in my life that revealed it to me. And that's what happened to Abraham. God will do the same for you. He's going to take the lead here. He's going to identify your idols for you, and he's going to ask you to give them up. See, Abraham wasn't the only one in the ancient Near East who was asked to give up their firstborn. I mean, every, for everyone, their, their functional allegiance was to their firstborn. That was their culture's idol. See, what God wants to do is he wants to get you to the point that whatever your thing is, whether it's a, a thing or a person or an activity or an organization, whatever the thing is that you love most, he wants to get you to the point where you can look at it and say, I have God and I can live without you. See, up to the point of you being able to say that, your heart's been saying, not your lips, is that you have to have X to be happy, but it's not true. So this morning, why not offer it up? I mean, it's going to feel like God's killing you, but he's actually saving you. The truth is, is that you're in bondage and you're not as free as God desires for you to be. And he wants freedom for you, brother and sister. You might say, well, Marsh, I mean, kind of, this was a one-time thing for Abraham, wasn't it? I mean, and it was a little extreme, so surely the path forward for me and me getting a grip on these things, I mean, surely it's going to look a little different, and you're right. I get that. When you look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, what Paul says is that he wants us to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, and that's something that we do all our days. It's not a one-time thing. So what does that look like? What does it look like for us to offer ourselves up so that we might keep our priorities in the right place so that we might not let God's gifts be more important to us than God himself? I've just got a few tips. Here's the first one. First thing I would suggest is to develop the discipline of gratitude. See, when you're thanking God for the gifts that he's given you on a regular basis, what you're doing is that you're actively acknowledging that you're just a steward and that you're not an owner. See, when you're in the habit of giving gratitude to God, when that's woven into your life, you're far less likely to take his gifts for granted. You're far more likely that to see yourself not as the source of the good things, but you're, you're going to see God as the source of the good things in your life. So develop the discipline of gratitude. Second thing I'd say is I'd say involve other people. I mean, we're so self-deceived, aren't we? We're so self-deceived that we are the least qualified people to identify where our allegiances actually lie. Everyone else knows what's important to us. You know, if you watched me watch a Bengals game, you would know real quick what's important to me. You would know real quick when you saw what I look at on the internet, you would see real quickly that the Bengals are way too important to me. But I would tell you, no, they're not important. It's just a football team. Not that important. 
I don't have my Joe Burrow socks on today, but I thought about it. But see, we're self-deceived. And even if God has helped you know what your priorities are, your ability to maintain healthy relationships to the gifts that he's given you is very unlikely. Your hearts so easily go back to being out of alignment. And so what we need, what we need are God's people. They're the ones who help us not be self-deceived. They're the ones who help us do the heart maintenance that we need to make sure that God's gifts don't, become, don't take the place of God himself. So involve other people. Develop the discipline of gratitude. The third thing I say is understand the vanity of life. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of my favorite authors. He was a, a minister in England in the mid-20th century. And he came to faith as a young physician. He was in his late 20s when he came to faith. And he came to faith not through some evangelist, not through some hardcore grandma. He came to faith because he watched one of the most accomplished physicians in all of London lose his wife. And when Lloyd-Jones watched this accomplished doctor lose his, lose, lose his wife and how distraught he was, he saw that the doctor couldn't continue in his practice. He quit. And so this caused Lloyd-Jones, somebody that he looked up to, it cost him to do some reflection. And what Lloyd-Jones realized is how vaporous all of life is. It made him look for something more solid, something more reliable. And that's what led him to the Christian faith. So brother and sister, what an important insight, isn't it? I mean, the most precious things in life, they're so temporary. They're so fleeting. I mean, think about it. I've been thinking about this for my own life. I saw this graph of the number of hours that you spend with the most important people in your life. And it was terrifying when it came to, to, to your children, that your children, you spend all this time with them, early, early, early years. And then guess what? At 18, it dropped off a cliff. And I was like, dang it, my kids are going to move out one day. So your kids are going to move out of the house. Your body's going to start getting wrinkles. Your metabolism's going to slow down. You're going to get sick. The stock market's going to fail. You're, you're going to get termites. You're going to get bed bugs. Your job's going to transfer you far from your family. So you might as well realize that the foundations of security of your heart are terribly fragile. And the things that we treasure, they're more unstable than we're willing to admit. Friends, but anyways, this is just advice, isn't it? I mean, be thankful, have friends, realize the vanity of life. And brother, sister, you need more than advice today. I hope you came to church for more than advice today. See, what you really need, what I really need is more than advice, and it's provision. I mean, advice, you can follow it, obey it, and that's not at all what Genesis chapter 2 is about. Genesis chapter 22 is about provision. You see the word three times. The first time you see the word is with Isaac. Isaac's going up there. He's not a kid anymore, and he's strong enough to carry wood on his back. And he noticed that he's got the wood. His dad's got knife and the fire. And what he realizes is that they're missing one important element for worship. They don't have an animal. And so he asks his father, Father Abraham, and he says, Dad, where's the animal? 
And Abraham responds, the Lord will provide. But Abraham had no idea. Abraham had no idea what God was going to do. I mean, he did know that God brought Isaac from his barren wife. I mean, that was impossible. And the passage that we heard Rachel read just a few minutes ago from Hebrews chapter 11 is that Abraham considered that Isaac could be brought back from the dead. And so as Abraham's climbing the mountain, he's not saying, this is crazy, this is murder. But I'm just going to do it anyways because I do whatever God tells me. It's not what he was saying. He was simply saying, God's going to provide somehow. I don't know how he's going to provide. Maybe it's resurrection. I don't know what he's going to do, but he's going to do something. And so when Abraham tells Isaac, the Lord's going to provide, what Abraham's essentially doing is he's throwing the ball back in God's court. (laughs) I mean, he's telling God, it's your job to provide that which you have commanded. See, what Abraham knows is that he's not the hero. He knows Isaac's not the hero in in the drama of salvation. He knows God's the protagonist. He knows that God's the hero. And guess what? The very last minute when Isaac's strapped to the wood, Abraham's raised his knife, a ram appears in the bush to be the sacrifice. And we see here that the God who tests Abraham is now the God who has provided for him. The tester is the provider. And so when God tests you, he's going to provide for you, brother and sister. And the way he's provided for you most is through Jesus. I mean, haven't you smelled Jesus all over this text? I mean, it's so obvious. I mean, I've been so excited as a preacher to get to this text because Jesus is all over the place in here. I mean, just take Abraham. I mean, just as Abraham sacrificially and obediently laid Isaac on the altar, so Christ sacrificially and obediently submits to his father by laying himself on a Roman cross. The thing that makes Jesus better is that Jesus' obedience was his whole life. He didn't have any slips, slip-ups. He didn't have any ups and downs. But Abraham had a ton of them. He's got this exemplary episode in Genesis 22. But Abraham's life, on the whole, is a mess. Jesus wasn't. Then you got Isaac. I mean, just as Isaac was the son of promise to Abraham for the salvation of the world, Jesus was the son of God. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. He's the beloved Son who achieved salvation for all people across all time. See, just like Isaac carried wood up the mountain to, take, to make an altar for a burnt sacrifice, Jesus carries a wooden cross up Mount Calvary to sacrifice himself. Take the ram. I mean, the ram died so that Isaac might live. Later, when Israel's enslaved in Egypt, the Lord saved their firstborn sons by means of the blood of a ram, the Passover lamb. Then when Israel was in the promised land, they offered burnt offerings and guilt offerings at the temple in order to pay the penalty for their sin so that they could live. And in the fullness of time, the Lord provides his son, Jesus, as a substitute offering so that his people might live. And John the Baptist, when he introduced Jesus, he called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus himself in in Mark 10, 45, said that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. So you see, Jesus is the better Abraham, he's the better Isaac, and he's better than that ram caught in the thicket. And the New Testament writers know this. It's all over the New Testament My favorite one was in in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Paul says, 
He, God, who did not spare his own son, the Lamb of God, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? See, in other words, Jesus is the most clear evidence that God provides for you. God provided for you by meeting your most urgent, your most costly need, the forgiveness of sin. And if God provided for you in that way, won't he provide all the other things that you need in life? I don't know if you have a tattoo or not. I've been thinking about it. I'm 42, I've waited this long. But I've been thinking this week, if I were going to get one, I think I'd say God will provide. And I think a lot of times when we say that, we say, oh, you know, God's going to provide for this thing that I so desperately want. You know, God will provide for me a spouse. God will provide for me so that I can pay my bills. But I think if I had this motto, God will provide, I think what I would be thinking is, I don't have to save myself. God's provided for me. So brother and sister, his provision is ready. His provision is waiting. It's right here. So we trust him this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for news this morning. <laughs> we, need more, we needed more than an inspirational word today. We needed to know that you love us. And uh, Lord, I pray you would help us parse out what it is that's going on in our hearts. And Lord, we wouldn't uh, take on the burden for doing that, but Lord, we would wait on you. We would wait on you to reveal those things to us and Lord, that you would show us the way forward. And as you show us the way forward, Lord, I pray that we would, as we heard earlier, that we would fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray these things in your name. Amen.